This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. I, as always, am your host, Simon. I'm one of my writers, in this case, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Has written me a script, A Mystery Murder of Room 1046. Never heard of this. Uh, and if you're new here, I've never read this before. So let's just jump in, shall we? I thought I'd start today's episode off on a cheery note by reminding you, our lovely viewers, that you're all going to die someday. <laughs> oh, God, memento mori. Wasn't it like back in the Roman days? And they'd have, like, the people who would return from battle. And they'd just have a dude behind them being like, Remember, you will die. Just to, like, keep their egos in check. And it's like, holy shit. I mean, are we all gonna die someday? Like, I was having a chat with one of my writers. And we were talking about this. And whether we might be like the last generation to die because technology is beginning to move really really quickly and how far are we away really from like long-term like significant life extension i feel like this isn't just some like wizard thing that people in the past were like oh yeah drink some mercury and you'll live forever but some like actual science like crispr and shit and gene engineering and all of that stuff and then like if we can live for like a couple hundred years just with some gene engineering then surely in like 200 years we're going to be like uploading our brains into computers like 200 years is a long time like that's like before the industrial 200 years ago like we didn't really have that many machines <laughs> in fact statistically about a dozen of you who are watching this video are going to be murdered fuck me that's kind of terrifying unfortunately for those of you who that's going to happen most of the world isn't going to notice it's nothing personal i'm sure you'll be missed but over 1300 people are murdered at worldwide every day so they can't all make international headlines considering like 12 of you 12 viewers watching like statistically gonna get murdered is that over lifetime or just within the next year i think that's probably within the next year right then 1300 people a day considering the world's population is like 7 billion that i know that's a lot of people being murdered <laughs> but it's also like not <laughs> besides your killer will probably be your spouse or some other family member or at least somebody close to you in all likelihood it will be an open and shut case without any particularly interesting details that would catch the public's attention that's right not only am i going to be saying that a dozen of you are going to be murdered but your murders are going to be too boring to be newsworthy way to win the audience over with the introduction gavin <laughs> so what's it take for the public to be captivated by the murder of a non-celebrity being a pretty white girl helps but beyond that there needs to be something mysterious about the death something like a person with no name and odd behavior being murdered in a vaguely public place a case with virtually zero evidence an anonymous benefactor saving the victim from a pauper's grave it's a case that has never been solved and yet it has been revealed that there is someone alive today who knows the true identity of the killer. 
this is very spicy. This is kind of like halfway between a decoding the unknown and a casual criminalist, isn't it? If you're list, if you're if you're new, casual criminalist is another podcast that I do that you should definitely check out. So now, submitted for your approval, the mystery of room 1046. Dawn of the first day, 72 hours remain. Wait, isn't that the format of some show? I feel like there's a show where this happens, like Law and Order or some shit, and it's like 72 hours before something. Or like, maybe it is even literally Remain. It could be. I think I saw one episode of Law and Order once and was like, ah, it's not for me. Roland T. Owen departed from the Jesus Mullerbach Hotel. <laughs> Maybe. I've got no, no idea how to pronounce that. In Kansas City, Missouri. He had been staying there for the past few nights, but now he had a new destination in mind. A cheaper hotel. On the afternoon of January the 2nd, 1935, Roland checked into the Hotel President instead. Doesn't sound very cheap, but often you'll see like a hotel and you'll be like, wow, that's got a fancy name. And then you look at pictures and you're like, oh my god. The name is the only thing that is fancy. But despite no longer wanting to splurge on the nicer hotel, he still had some specific requests. The hotel formed a square perimeter with an open spot in the center for a courtyard, and Roland requested a room multiple stories up on the interior of the building so he would have a view of the hotel's courtyard. That's a simple request and not a particularly odd one, so the staff were very happy to oblige. Roland finished checking in, paying up front for one night's stay, giving them his name, and listing his address simply as Los Angeles. <laughs> Yeah. When I fill out those forms and check into hotels, I'm always like, it's like always such a hassle that I'm always like, I'll just do half my address. It's like, yeah, do you need a house number really? Do you need my email address? No. And I'll just put like blank. I'll just leave it blank, like put a line through it. And no one ever questions that. It's like liquids at an airport. Do I have liquids in my bag? Yes. Am I telling the security person? Absolutely not. Because <laughs> like nine out of 10 times, it's going to be fine. He was then escorted to the elevator and up to his room by the bellboy Randolph Propst. This wasn't entirely necessary, as Roland didn't have any bags with him that he needed help with, but it may have just been a courtesy to help show people where their rooms were. It's also possible that Randolph suspected Roland would be a good tipper, as the staff noticed how well-dressed he was. And yes, American workers surviving on tips rather than being paid by employers had already been the cultural norm for decades at this point. Yeah, I find this so awkward when someone, like, goes with you to your room. Like, in America, you know you have to tip, but other countries? It's like, I don't know. What am I supposed to do? And then it's like, it's, it's weird if the person's like, oh, no, thank you. And then you're like, oh, no, that was super awkward. And it's like, you know, when you're on a bus or whatever, and you stand up for someone who's old, and they're like, oh, I'm not that old. And then you feel like, like worried about getting up for old people in the future because you're going to get told off. And you're like, that's insane. <laughs> but still. And now I'm like, I, I think someone must have refused my tip at some point because i'm like i don't know what to do i don't like this situation just pay everyone fairly we shouldn't have to live like this however it was more than roland's fancy clothes and dark overcoat that the staff noticed about him they estimated he was a very young man or maybe he was about simon's age <laughs> well thank you very much kevin i'm not calling you old simon wait it sounded like you were just calling me young but witnesses put uh roland's age is somewhere between 20 and 35 which is a very large and not particularly helpful range it's also astonishing that they managed to pick up such a wide range of ages and were still wrong but we'll come back to that later because that's not the most important thing they noticed i remember like i don't really get it myself because you have no idea how you look like you don't know what you look like anymore because you look at yourself so often in the mirror and shit but there was like one of the most upvoted comments on a video once was like simon's the kind of guy who he could tell you he's 24 or 44 and you'd believe him and i'm like i don't look that young and i don't look that old i look somewhere in the middle which i am but a lot of people apparently thought that <laughs> so i'll be great at committing crimes it's like i don't know he was young or maybe he was old maybe he was old, i don't know 
Roland had a large scar on his temple that extended above his ear. The scar was partially concealed by hair, but it was still visible. He also had a cauliflower ear. If you're unfamiliar with that condition, it's basically a deformity of the ear resulting from blood clots that's caused by physical trauma. Isn't this what rugby players get from, like, scrums? It's common among professional fighters, of course, because what the hell else is going to routinely hit the ear, so the staff assume that Roland was likely either a professional boxer or a wrestler. And if he's, like, rich, he's a pretty good one at that. Although then he's gonna look... He's gonna look super old for his age, isn't he? Because he's like putting his body through a lot. The only particularly notable thing about him was the lack of baggage, but that would hardly be suspicious at first. After all, he'd only paid for one night. Plus, if he was a professional fighter, maybe everything else he needed was being stored at a local gym or was being brought to him later by his manager. It wasn't until the elevator ride that this particular detail became a bit more unusual. Yeah, nor if I'm staying in a hotel, I'll at least have a small backpack. Like, at least there'll be a change of clothes in there. Randolph and Roland made small talk as they rode the elevator to the 10th floor, and it was at this point that Roland revealed that he'd previously been staying at the Mullerbach Hotel for the previous nights. After staying for a few days, he finally decided that the price of $5 per night for a room was absolutely outrageous, and he chose to come to the much more affordable Hotel Presidents. When is this happening? <laughs> I totally forgot when this was set. 1935. Okay, that makes sense, because obviously that's not like $5 for a hotel. It's expensive. You'd be like, what? With inflation, that $5 comes out to $110 today. <laughs> Wait, that's the expensive place? That seems like kind of a bargain. If it's like halfway nice. $110 doesn't even get you anywhere that nice anymore. Which is honestly still really good for a hotel. Last time I stayed at an actual hotel, I'm pretty sure I paid well over double that per night. Yeah, America's hotels, your, your hotels are also a ripoff. Like, they're kind of crappy, and they're, I mean, I'm sure there are nice ones. But even like, I don't know, I stayed in places with a few hundred dollars a night. And I feel like in Europe, that gets you like three, four, three hundred dollars a night. You're getting somewhere that's going to be pretty nice. But in America, it's like three hundred dollars a night gets you some like in a city gets you something that's just a bit shit. <laughs> it's like America, what's going on? And then like I remember going down, I was like, so where's breakfast? And they're like, oh, there isn't any. You can order room service. And I'm like, there's no breakfast. This was like hundreds of dollars. Where's my fucking pancakes? Where's the man squeezing juice? Where's the omelet bar? At only $2 a night, or about $45 today, Roland decided that the hotel president was a much better place to spend the night. You'd be lucky, lucky to get a room at a shitty Motel 6 for that price today, but the amenities of this hotel were definitely a few steps up from that. Randolph guided his guests through a series of branching hallways before finally unlocking the door to room 1046. The whole room was 9 feet by 12 feet, just under 3 by 4 meters. Ooh, so very small. What is that, 12 square feet? Square, 12 square meters? That's pretty small. That's very small. And it opens into a small entryway with a closet to the right and a bathroom on the left. Inside the main room, against the left wall was a small stand holding up a telephone, a writing table, a chair, and a dresser. I'm pretty sure writing table was a fancy way of saying desk rather than the room having a full-size table. The bed was against the right wall, and beyond that in the corner was an easy chair with a beautiful view of the courtyard that Roland had requested. After they entered, Randolph turned on the light to the room and watched as Roland went into the bathroom to organize his personal belongings. Out of his long black overcoat, Roland produced a hairbrush, a comb, and some toothpaste, but not a toothbrush. <laughs> okay. He neatly placed the items on the bathroom sink, and with that, he had completed his unpacking. This guy's like Jack Reacher. The mysterious man only brought with him three personal possessions, and two of them were basically the same thing. Once the unpacking was complete, they both walked out of the room and headed back towards the elevator. Randolph asked if he could have the key to go back to lock the room, as Roland hadn't bothered, so he ran back, turned the lights off, locked the door, and returned the key to Roland before the two headed back down to the lobby. Once they were in the lobby, he watched as Roland walked out of the hotel. But at this point, I want to quickly talk about how the doors worked at this hotel, because it's a little weird. 
okay. <laughs> Hotel keycards, as we think of them today, didn't really exist until the 1970s, but there were a type of analog passkey that existed. They had 32 positions that were either holes or not holes, creating billions of possible combinations. Really? Does that create billo- No, that's not- No. That's 64 different possible combinations. 32 positions with either whole, holes or non-holes is 32. Is that 32 multiplied by- Sorry, it's not 32. It's 32 multiplied by- It's 32 multiplied by 32, right? So like 940 combinations? I have a tiny brain, but I don't think it's billions. It seems like the staff had access to these keys, though the guests may have been re using regular ordinary keys. That part's not super important, but there are a lot of different and vague descriptions by different sources, so it's all a bit confusing. <laughs> I'm already very confused. However, the most important part is that the doors had two separate locking mechanisms. One for if it was locked from the outside, and one for if it was locked from the inside. Think of the outside lock as just a standard lock, the kind that makes it so the knob won't turn. Guests could only activate this lock from the outside, and the staff would use their pass keys to unlock the doors if they were locked in this way. Then there was the inside lock, which was essentially a deadbolt. The deadbolt could only be locked from the inside, which would not have required a key, but the staff's regular pass keys wouldn't be able to unlock the deadbolt. Instead, they would need to get the hotel's master key to open the door if it was locked from the inside. Okay, that makes sense. I was thinking for a minute that they would have no way to get in, and I'm like, yo, people definitely kill themselves in hotel rooms, so what are they, every time that happens, they have to bust down a door? In short, if the staff were able to get into the room without getting the special master key, it meant one of two things. Either the door wasn't locked in the first place, or the door had been locked from the outside. In case the implication wasn't obvious, that means that anybody who was inside the room at the time could not have been the one that locked the door. But hey, maybe that's not actually going to be important later. I'm just into super 1930s era doors. No, Kevin, I get the feeling it's important. So what we're saying is deadbolt from the inside, but you can't do the outside locking thing from the inside. Okay, cool. I'm following. I don't think I agree with you about that billions of combination things, though. Because if it was billion, just to go back to it, to have billions of combinations, you'd have to have 32 rows, each with 32 different possible combinations. And then you'd get to, like, a lot. Like, that's 32 to the power of 32, right? Oh god, I wish I was big brain. Let's ask ChatGPT. I'm not going to be able to leave this alone. Yo, ChatGPT, my dude. Let's say that I have a key and it has 32 different positions. And each position can either be in a 1 or a 0. How many overall combinations do I therefore have? Hey, um, with a key that has 32 positions, and each position can be either a 1 or a 0, you're dealing with binary combinations. Well, yes, but how many combinations are possible? There are 4,294,967,296 possible combinations for, for your key. That's a lot of options. Oh my god, Is how does that work? Wow. Okay, I completely underestimated that. And Kevin was right. That just doesn't seem post. That that's one of those stats where you're like, surely not. But apparently so. Shortly after Roland left the hotel, the maid Mary Soptic went to clean room 1046. It's not known exactly what time this occurred, but her shift started at noon, and Roland's had checked into the hotel at about 1:20 p.m. So it couldn't have been much later than that. Wait. The past was weird, so he's checking into a room that's not made up yet? <laughs> that never happens. Mary found that the door to room 1046 was locked from the inside, so she knocked on the door and was surprised when Roland opened the door to let her in. What? 
Was she surprised because Roland had been seen leaving the hotel not long before and none of the staff had seen him return? While both of these things were true, Mary was surprised for a much less sensible reason. The day before this was a day off, but the day before there had been a woman staying in room 1046. She had been surprised that Roland was not the woman that answered the door, almost as if she didn't understand how hotels work and that it could be a different person in the same room every single day. Yeah, like what? It's like it's a hotel. That's literally how it works, Mary. Was her name Mary? Yes. Mary apologized for the intrusion and offered to come back later, but Roland told her it was fine and that she could go ahead and clean. When she came in, she noticed the peculiar state of the room. Despite specifically requesting a courtyard view, Roland had tightly drawn the shades, letting in no light from the outside. The dim lamp on the desk provided the only source of light for the room. Roland told Mary to leave the door unlocked because he was expecting a friend. He then put on his coat, went to the bathroom to brush his hair, and reminded Mary not to lock the door because he was expecting his friend to arrive in a few minutes. He then left the room while she finished cleaning. No friend arrived while Mary was there, and she later described Roland as seeming like he was worried about something or afraid. This is a- they're in like a tiny ass room, just like dancing around each other? Why wouldn't you just go down to the lobby or something? Obviously, hotels are big places with lots of rooms to clean, so when I said before that it couldn't have been long between Roland leaving the room and Mary coming to clean it, you may have thought, or Simon may have said, that it could have been hours depending on how many rooms she'd taken care of. No, but yes, suppose so. While that theoretically would be true, she returned to the room at about 4pm to deliver some fresh towels because the laundry wasn't ready earlier. This means that whatever Roland had left the hotel to do initially, he had returned to the room less than two hours later and without being noticed before Mary came to clean for the first time. When she came to room 1046 for the second time that afternoon, the door was unlocked just as Mary had left it. The room was still dark, being lit only by a single dim lamp with the blinds fully drawn. This would be the case any time anybody entered the room. However, it was no longer empty. Wherever Roland had gone to while Mary was cleaning initially, he had returned and was simply lying across the bed, fully clothed. To be fair, for the maid walking in, I'm sure that situation is preferable to finding a man lying across the bed fully naked, but it was still weird. Mary also continued, Yeah, but working in hotels, you must see some weird shit, right? Because people are weird. And it's like there's so many people coming in and out. There's got to be some weird shit going down in hotels. Mary also noticed a note on the bedside table that she was only able to read thanks to the light from the hallway coming through the open door. It read, Don, I'll be back in 15 minutes. Wait. Did Roland write this note while Mary was cleaning before and she hadn't noticed it? And if so, had Don already come and gone? Even if the note was written later, had Don already been there and left, or was Roland still awaiting his friend's arrival? And for that matter, who the fuck was Don? And why had this dude specifically requested a room several floors above a, with a courtyard view if he was just going to be hanging around in the dark, lying on the bed with his clothes on? It was all very strange, but it wasn't immediately concerning, and at least he wasn't trashing the room. Mary had a lot more rooms to deliver towels to, so she just left this weirdo to hang out in the darkness alone, or possibly with Don if he hadn't shown up yet but we're still planning to. Okay, <laughs> I'm very curious about what's going on in today's episode. Dawn of the second day, 48 hours remain. It was around 10.30 when Mary went to clean room 1046 for the day. She arrived and discovered that the door was locked, but a pass key works, which, if you recall from before, means that the door had been locked from the outside. While she expected to find the room empty, instead she discovered that Roland was still in the bedroom. He was sitting alone in the dark as he always was. When Mary began cleaning, the phone rang. Wait, so someone has locked him in his room? which is odd. Roland answered the phone, and she heard him say to whoever's on the other end, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I am not hungry. I just had breakfast. There was a short pause on Roland's end of the conversation, after which he repeated, No, I am not hungry. He hung up the phone, and for the first time, he decided to engage Mary in small talk. 
She said he was very nice and mostly asked questions about her job, if she was responsible for the entire floor, if it was a residential hotel, things like that. And it was not a residential hotel, so I'm still confused why she was surprised to find that the guest in room 1046 had changed, but whatever. Roland also began to complain about the Mulevark Hotel's prices again, at which point Mary was probably happy that she'd finished cleaning and could leave. She returned at around 4pm with fresh towels, just like the previous day, but this time she didn't check to see if the door was unlocked because she could hear two voices talking inside. She knocked on the door, and a deep, loud voice that she did not recognize as Roland's asked her who it was. When Mary said that it was the maid and she bought fresh towels, the voice told her, We don't need any. This was a lie, and Mary knew it, because she had removed the towels from the room that morning. Was this voice that told her to leave the elusive Don from the previous day's note? Probably, but who knows? It was noteworthy enough for her to remember, but it certainly wasn't worth telling anybody about at the time. That same day, 30-year-old Jean Owen had driven into Kansas City from Lee's Summit. She planned to spend the day shopping before meeting up with her boyfriend, Joe Raynard. After a few hours of shopping, Jean began to feel sick, so she went to a flower shop where Joe worked to call off their date. Rather than driving all the way back to Lee's Summit, she decided to get a room at the hotel president's rest, but she told Joe she'd call him and tell him her room number, because apparently she was too sick to drive 30 minutes home, but not too sick for hotel sex. Oh, and Gene Owen had no relation to Roland Owen. That's just a happy coincidence. Oh, okay. The, was he the... Okay. What's this guy's name? Is the main guy called Rudolph or Roland? Oh, the main guy's called Roland. Rudolph must have been the the porter. She checked in at around 6.30pm, and just before 7, she gave Joe a call to tell him what room she was in. He arrived at about 9.20, and the couple spent two hours together visiting, as 1930s reporting put it, before he left. I'm sure visiting definitely meant he just came over to bring her some chicken soup. That's exactly right. That's all he did. Once Joe had left, Jean was distracted by a lot of loud noises outside her room. She heard both male and female voices talking loudly and swearing, although she decided not to call the hotel desk about the disruption. This is one of the few events from that evening that may or may not actually be related to what happened inside room 1046. No one can really decide. Many people believe that the voices were coming from Roland's room, indicating that whatever happened involved not only Roland and Don, but at least one woman. Regardless of who was in 1046 that night, I'm, I'm personally not convinced that's what she heard. Jean's official statement said that she heard a lot of noise which sounded like it was on the same floor. Now, there's a big difference between loud noise on the same floor as you as loud noise directly on the other side of your wall. Seeing as Mary was able to hear Roland and presumably Don speaking through the door, I guess the walls at the hotel president were thin enough that if the loud swearing was coming from 1046, Jean would have been able to say so with absolute certainty. I could be wrong, though, and maybe she was sick enough that day that she really couldn't tell if it was the next room over. But, uh, yeah, no, no matter, like, if you're sick or whatever, she's not that that's it, because she was out and about. So, it wasn't next door. But the police discounted Jean's statement about the noise thanks to the elevator operator, Charles Blocker, who mentioned that there was a loud party in room 1055. And that's not all that old Charlie had to say that evening. His shift began at around midnight, and early on in his shift, a woman requested to be taken to the 10th floor. Charlie recognized her and described her as a commercial woman, which has led to some fantastic descriptions of this aspect of the case. What is a commercial woman? Is he meaning like a sex worker? Is that what he's talking about? Some modern accounts saw that phrase, combined with Charlie's statements that she would frequently go to different rooms in a hotel with different men, and assume that she was some sort of door-to-door -door saleswoman. Oh, okay. Although, in a manner of speaking, she was. Aside from the fact that unsolicited door-to-door -door sales were not a suitable occupation for a woman in the 1930s, I don't think that was the peak time for vacuum sales. <laughs> it wasn't a manner of speaking. <laughs> oh, Kevin, no. So I was right. And in case my comments somehow appear just as subtle to you as Charlie's did, saying she was a commercial woman was his polite way of saying that she was a sex worker. Yes, we got it. <laughs> Thank you.
Anyway, Charlie took the woman to her destination, and she asked which way to room 1026. But five minutes later, he was paged back to the 10th floor. She explained that nobody had answered the door, and she was wondering if maybe she was supposed to go to room 1024 because she could see that the light was on. She was surprised that nobody had answered at room 1026, as this client was always on time and never stood her up, so she was a bit confused. After paging the elevator, just to deliver this helpful exposition to Charlie, which allowed him to include it in his statement to the police, she decided to remain on the 10th floor for another 30 minutes. Still unable to find her client, she called the elevator again, and Charlie took her to the lobby. The woman left the hotel, but she returned with a man about an hour later. Charlie took them to the ninth floor, and the two went to his room for a vacuum demonstration. She wound up leaving at about quarter past four, and 15 minutes later, the elevator was paged again to the ninth floor, this time by the man she had previously accompanied. He said that he couldn't sleep and was going for a walk. Okay, so what the fuck does any of that have to do with Roland? Well, maybe nothing, or maybe everything. Nobody's sure, but it's possible that either the sex worker took the number down wrong and was actually looking for room 1046 rather than 1026, or maybe Roland gave her the wrong room number by mistake. Or maybe it had nothing at all to do with him other than to add one more potential witness to any wrongdoings that could be transpiring in on the abnormally raucous 10th floor that evening. Or maybe, just maybe, the 9th floor wasn't the final destination for the woman and her sex client. But in between Jean's hotel rendezvous and the sex worker's missing client, something happened a few miles away from the hotel. Robert Lane was a regular employee of the Kansas City Water Department. <laughs> we, are, okay, we are all over the show today. Just minding his own business and driving down 13th Street at about 11pm. He noticed a strange man running along the side of the road wearing only shoes, slacks, and an undershirt. Admittedly, from this distance, it would only have seemed strange because it was late at night in the dead of winter, so the guy was clearly underdressed, but it was also a relatively mild night as far as winter goes. The stranger began waving and shouting for Robert to stop, but as he slowed down to pull over, he could see the man squinting through the headlights and furrowing his brow as he examined the car. Once Robert stopped, the man apologized for flagging him down and said that he thought it was a taxi. After looking up and down the empty street, he then asked Robert if he could take him somewhere to get a cab. That is very nice of you. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, mate, have a good night. <laughs> you know what I'm not doing today? Getting murdered by you. Good night. Robert, who was undeterred by the fact that a stranger he could now see was covered in blood and just made sure they were alone before asking to get into his car, gave the man a nod of approval and said, you look as if you've been in it bad. The man got in Robert's back seat and said, I'll kill that expletive deleted tomorrow. Okay. I mean, we normally swear in these episodes. <laughs> we filtered that out. Was it that bad? Sadly, thanks to decency standards of the time, that expletive has been deleted from all records of recorded history, so you'll have to fill in the blank yourself with your favorite swear words. <laughs> Okay. So it wasn't Kevin, it's just like historical record has been removed. Anyway, Robert drove the stranger to the intersection of 12th and Troost, where cabbies would often wait for late night fares. That dude's gonna struggle to get a cab if he's covered in blood. Also, dude, Robert's a good guy. He's like, yeah, sure, I give you. Is that blood? Yeah, that's no worries. Sure, have a seat. That's fine. No, it's a cloth interior. It won't wipe off. No, it's good. <laughs> it's fine. During the drive, he kept an eye on the man in his backseat through the rearview mirror. There was a deep scratch visible on his left arm, but Robert also noted that the man kept his hands cupped as if he were trying to catch blood from a deeper wound. Once they reached their destination, the man got out of Robert's car, opened the driver's door of a parked taxi, and laid into the horn. The cab's owner came running out of the diner, and Robert drove away, telling him that this arsehole was that guy's problem now. That part's not a direct quote, but I imagine he was thinking something like that. But once again, we're unsure whether or not this is related to the case. Could this man have been Roland? Was it someone Roland had injured and who was now vowing revenge? Robert thought he knew the answer, but police disagreed. I'll let you decide when we get to the investigation. Dawn of the final day. 24 hours of pain. It was January the 4th, 
1935. Two days after Rowland initially checked into the hotel president, at 7 a.m. that morning, there was a shift change for the telephone operators and Della Ferguson took over. There was a number of wake-up calls requested for seven, including one for room 1046. Della noticed that the phone was off the hook, but nobody was using it. About 10 minutes later, when the phone was still off the hook, she asked for a bellboy to be sent to the room to deal with the situation. Randolph was working again that morning, so he had the lucky task of going to wake up the idiot that forgot to hang up his phone. The room had a Do Not Disturb sign hanging off the doorknob, but he tried the door anyway. The door was locked, but he didn't have his passkey. Randolph banged on the door, and Roland called for him to come in. That wasn't possible. So again, Randolph knocked, and this time Roland asked him to turn on the lights. They were getting nowhere, so after knocking over half a dozen more times, Randolph just yelled through the door, PUT THE PHONE BACK ON THE HOOK! and after briefly waiting to see if there was a response, walked away. When he returned downstairs, Randolph informed Della that the guy in room 1046 was probably drunk and just to send somebody back up if an hour, in an hour if the phone was still off the hook. I don't think we can really fault him for that, as I'm sure this sort of stuff happens all the time. Yeah, like hotels be wild. Over an hour later at 8.30, Della noticed that Drunky Magoo hadn't been able to put the phone back on the receiver yet, so this time she sent a different bellboy, Harold Pike, to go and handle it. When Harold got to the door, it was still locked, but unlike Randolph, he'd actually thought about bringing a passkey with him. It worked, again indicating that the door had been locked from the outside, so he let himself in. Why would they think that the door had been... Why would they even think this? Like, if someone's in the room, unless someone's locked them in, why would they think that it's been like this? Harold didn't get as lucky as Mary had, because this time, Roland was actually lying naked on the bed. Harold also noticed that there were dark shadows on the bedsheets around Roland's, though in the dimly lit room he didn't recognize what it was. In all likelihood, he just assumed it was a combination of piss and shit and absolutely did not want that to be his problem, so he focused on the phone instead. The stand had been knocked over, so Harold put it back upright, placed the phone on top, and then hung up the receiver. He went back downstairs and told his boss that Roland was naked and drunk in bed. But two hours later, at around 10.30, something happened. Another phone operator noticed that the phone for 10.46 was off the hook yet again. Randolph was sent back up to the room at 11 to investigate, this time having the foresight to bring his key with him. Harold had locked the door when he left, and the Do Not Disturb sign was still hanging outside, so Randolph repeatedly banged on the door. When nobody answered, he let himself inside. Roland was no longer in bed at this point, but I'll let Randolph describe the scene for me. To quote, when I entered the room, this man was within two feet of the door, on his knees and elbows, holding his head in his hands. I noticed blood on his head. I then turned the light on, placed the telephone receiver on the hook, and I looked around and saw blood on the walls, on the bed, and in the bathroom. This frightened me, and I immediately left the room and went downstairs. Now, if that sounds a little stiff to you, just remember that this was Randolph's statement to the police, not some interview he was giving to a reporter after the fact. But the scene was much worse than how Randolph described. He likely just didn't notice. He ran out to get help in such a hurry that he probably didn't have time to see what was not just the walls, but the ceiling being painted in blood. The blood of a man who had been in the state since at least 7am when they first noticed the phone and who was somehow still alive four hours later. That's crazy. His blood's everywhere and he's just like, yeah, no, I'm okay. I'll knock over the phone again. <laughs> the assistant manager rushed to room 1046 along alongside a guy named Percy, whose job at the hotel is unclear. But they couldn't get in the door. Roland had collapsed in front of it, and, and the door would only open about six inches before colliding with the injured man. Eventually, Roland was able to get himself back up, and when Percy and the manager came in, Roland went to the bathroom and sat on the edge of the bathtub, resting his head atop the sink. 
Finally, it was time for somebody to call the police. Yeah, why are you doing this immediately? And not the police. An ambulance. This guy's terribly injured. Two detectives arrived. <laughs> They're like, oh no, he's, he's done for. He's, he's just dead. He's, you know, we might as well call the police to investigate your death. And he's like, but I'm not dead yet. And they are like, yeah, but you will be, won't you, mate? <laughs> what the fuck? And the detectives are coming. Shortly followed by Dr. Harold Flanders and a third detective. I choose to believe that Flanders showed up mere seconds after the detectives because I can't find any indication that they were doing anything to help Roland before the doctor arrived. Then again, I don't know what they could have realistically done. To say Roland looked like he'd been in it bad would be a severe understatement. Yeah, when there's blood on the ceiling, you know it's been messy. He looked like he had been tortured. There were cords around his wrists, ankles, and neck that had been used as restraints, though clearly his neck was no longer being bound to anything. That said, bruising on his neck indicated that he had been strangled. His skull had been struck repeatedly on the right side, causing it to fracture, and the coup de grace were several stab wounds to the chest. Oh, okay, so he is dead now. Wait, is he dead? No. He's not dead. The stab wounds were all in close proximity to the heart, although the attacker had failed to puncture it. He had, however, punctured Roland's left lung. Flanders cut the cord that was restraining Roland's wrists, and Roland's first instinct was to turn the spigot on and start running himself a bath. Flanders turned the water off and tried to get some answers out of the man that was miraculously still alive after having bled out for all this time while functioning with a single lung, and also a fractured skull. Who did this to you? Who else was in the room with you? Nobody. How'd you get hurt? I fell against the bathtub. Did you try to commit suicide? No. <laughs> I fell against the bathtub many times near my heart with a knife. <laughs> Without Roland lost consciousness and was rushed to the hospital, he fell into a coma on the way but managed to cleanse alive for the next 12 hours. The police had long since ruled out suicide as an option by that point, so shortly after midnight on January the 5th, Roland T. Owen died a murder victim. Or at least he would have, if he had ever existed. Do -do 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 <laughs> the investigation. Once Roland was being taken to the hospital, detectives got to work searching the room for clues. Flanders stayed behind as well because forensic science kinda sucked back then, so doctors would often play the role of forensic investigators as they had the most applicable skills. Based on the extent to which the blood both on Roland's body and on the walls and bedding had solidified, Flanders put the time of the attack at roughly seven hours earlier, sometime between 4 and 5 a.m. Is it just a coincidence that this was the time that the sex worker and her client were seen leaving the hotel separately? Well, yes, it probably was. But much more interesting than the time of death were the clues left behind at the scene, as well as the clues that weren't left behind. To say that Roland had been traveling light would be a bit of an understatement, but at this point, there was virtually no evidence that he had stayed in the room at all. Everything Roland had brought with him had vanished. His clothes, including his overcoat, his shoes, his comb, even his toothpaste, had all disappeared. The only things in room 1046 that belonged to Roland were the tag that was torn off his necktie and about four pints of blood. Jesus Christ, isn't that like half a person's blood? Don't you have like eight pints rolling around inside you? Jeez. The tag showed that his tie was from Botany Worsted Mills Company of Passaic in New Jersey. That wasn't helpful, it's just the only thing of his they had. However, there were several personal effects that were in the room that had clearly not belonged to the murdered man. There was a hairpin a safety pin, an unlit cigarette, and most perplexingly, an unopened bottle of diluted sulfuric acid. Perhaps whoever had killed Roland may have had even more torture in mind but never got around to it. Yeah, I mean, this does seem like it, right? Because he's been tortured. Not only were Roland's clothes and few possessions missing, but some of the typical hotel items had been stolen as well. It's mentioned that the soap, shampoo, and towels were all missing from the room. <laughs> it's not, I am going there for a murder, but I might as well steal the shampoo. However, I don't believe that they were actually stolen. The last known interaction between the staff and room 1046 before the events of the final days was when Mary tried to bring towels and was told to go away. 
The killer still swiped the hotel soap and shampoo, but can you blame them? You've probably stolen those same things from hotels yourself. And when the killer did this, it was the middle of the Great Depression, so what's your excuse, you damn thief? <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely have stolen, or like not stolen. I paid for them. I paid. I paid for the room. I'm taking those with me, especially if they're super nice. <laughs> anyway, there was one thing that was missing from the hotel room: a murder weapon. There were no knives anywhere in the rooms. So the police were quickly able to rule out suicide. I think the fractured skull, wrist bindings, and blood on the ceiling would have been enough to rule that out. Yes, like how did he kill himself in the most insanely brutal way possible? It's like, yeah, how did he die? I oh, killed himself. Shot himself in the head twice <laughs> but i'm not a detective even though the murder weapon wasn't present the detectives were pretty sure they'd identified it each hotel room had two water glasses in it one was still on the shelf above the sink and the other had been broken in the sink with a giant shard missing that shard is believed to be what was used to repeatedly stab roland the final piece of forensic evidence that was found in the room was a set of four fingerprints on the glass top of a telephone stand according to the detectives those fingerprints belonged to a woman Yes, it may be possible to deduce the gender of a person from their fingerprints with 99% accuracy, thanks to extensive research and data analysis. Really? Of course, the initial report about this new analytical technique was published by the University of Alabama in 2015, so that's not what detectives were going on. They believed that the fingerprints must have belonged to a woman because they were small. Great work, boys. The fingerprints did not match any of the hotel staff or anybody that was known to enter the hotel, though I can't say for sure whether or not they tracked down the previous guests from that room that Mary expected to find when she first met Roland. But even before Roland had died, police already began to suspect that this wasn't his real name. They called the Los Angeles Police Department, and there was no record of anybody with that name living in the city. Since he had complained to multiple staff members about the price at the Mulebach Hotel, they checked there as well. Again, there was no Roland Owen that had stayed, but there was a man that looked like the photograph police had shown of the victim. This man had also requested an interior room and listed Los Angeles as his address, but he had checked in under the name Eugene K. Scott. The LAPD had no record of anyone with that name living in the city either. The case was getting stranger and stranger, and their murder victim was now officially a John Doe. When Roland died on the morning of the 5th of January, doctors performed an autopsy before his body was shipped to Melody McGilly Funeral Home for Viewings. According to the autopsy, Roland died as the direct result of injuries that he sustained. Again, excellent work, boys. The day after his death was Sunday, and dozens or possibly even hundreds of people came to see if they could identify the mysterious victim of Room 1046. Some reports say there were 50 people who came to view the body that day, and others say there were 300. Regardless of which number was accurate, there are two things that we can say for certain. The first is that a whole lot more people were going to view Roland's body over the course of the next two months, possibly thousands of them. And the second one is that one of the people who went to the funeral home on the first day was Robert Lane. Robert saw the same deep scratch on Roland's arm that he'd seen on the mystery passenger the other night, and he was sure it was the same person. However, police discounted his story entirely. They believed it would have been impossible for Roland to enter the hotel in the state Robert described and make it back to his room without being seen. Yeah, he was a right mess. He's <laughs> like dripping blood. They'd be like, evening, you all right? <laughs> but with an American accent. Wearing just an undershirt with no shirt or jacket may not have drawn attention. I mean, it was cold out. It was winter still. It probably would have. But add in the bloody arm and surely somebody would have taken notice. After all, the elevator operator and desk clerk both remembered all the times the sex worker entered and exited the hotel, so they were at least vaguely aware of their surroundings. It certainly seems unlikely that Roland could have gotten back to his room unnoticed, but I suggest that it's not impossible. Yeah, he could have sneaked in. Like, if he's trying not to be detective, 
uh, detected, he'd just look in the window and be like, okay, okay, cool. Person's on reception. Person's on reception. They've gone to take a whiz. Let's go. And he runs in. He's like, gets to the elevator. And then he's just leaving like a dripping of blood. And that's it. Undetected. When Robert picked up the strange man on the side of the road, he said it was about 11 p.m. But how exact was he with that estimate? Was it give or take 20 minutes? Also, was 11 when he left wherever he had been so he could drive home? Or did his clock say 11 when he encountered the stranger? And if he was relying on the clock in his car for this estimate, how accurate was the clock? Cars were still equipped with mechanical clocks back then, which were prone to losing time. Once Robert had picked up his surprise guest, he then drove him about five miles to the intersection where taxis congregated at night. And since he drove away after his passenger began honking the taxi's horn, we don't know exactly how long it was until they departed. It was only another mile and a half or so from that intersection to the hotel, so it wouldn't have taken too long, but there may have been some argument beforehand between the cabbie and the stranger over the invasion of his cab. Okay, Kevin, so what's the point of all this temporal manipulation? Why are you trying to push the time back from 11? It's a great question, Simon. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Kevin's doing my tangents now as well. Okay, it makes my life easier. I'll just sit here. Kevin, in the future, just be like Kevin, dot, dot, you know, colon, and Kevin's line, and then my line. <laughs> and I'll just, like, pretend that I'm, like, coming up with it on the fly. In fact, maybe that's what I'm doing. There was a shift change at the hotel at midnight. Charlie, the elevator operator's night shift, didn't start until then, and the same was probably true for whoever was at the front desk as well. If Robert really had picked up Roland that night, it's possible he could have returned to the hotel president just before midnight when the shift change was going on. And if you've ever seen a movie involving a high-story prison break, that's the perfect time to make your move. Roland could potentially have entered the hotel and ducked unseen into the stairwell to avoid drawing unwanted attention to himself and his injury. I didn't bother explaining the entire layout of the 10th floor earlier, but room 1046 was just a couple of doors away from the stairs, which would allow Roland to go undetected by the partygoers. Is this scenario possible? Definitely. Is it likely? No, but it's no less likely than several of the things in this case that absolutely did happen. I don't think it's that unlikely to like for him to sneak past a receptionist to the like stairwell. It seems entirely possible. Unfortunately, even if the police had taken this potential lead seriously, it likely would have just been an exercise in futility. Robert didn't know anything about the man other than that he was planning to kill the expl expletive deleted tomorrow, but that isn't a lot to go on. Then again, the location where Robert picked up the stranger could have been a clue itself that led to bigger and better discoveries. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Aside from the strange behavior the hotel staff had witnessed, the only thing the police could determine about Roland was that he had been seen at some local bars on 12th Street in the company of two women. With little to go on, police turned their attention to Don. Who the fuck was Don? Was he the man Robert picked up that swore to murder somebody the next day? Was he the one in the room that told Mary to go away rather than to deliver fresh towels? They couldn't come to any useful conclusions. Because the murder had made national news, tips and inquiries were coming in from all over the country. There had been only a description rather than a photo in most of the nationwide stories, so people from all around were calling in to see if their friend or it was their friend or relative that had shown up dead. Police followed up on all of these leads, but in every case, it was not the right person. However, while the body remained on display, there were two possible breakthroughs in the case. One man came and positively identified the body as belonging to his cousin. It seemed like the case was closed until that man's sister came forward and informed the police that their cousin had died five years earlier, though he and Roland did bear a striking resemblance. <laughs> it's like, no, it's my cousin. It's like, oh, he looks like him, but he died five years ago, mate. Do you, were you not aware? <laughs> like, what? The other potential break came a week into the case when Tony 
Bernardi, a wrestling promoter out of Little Rock, Arkansas, saw Rowland's body. The previous month, Rowland had visited him and inquired about booking some matches, claiming that his name was Cecil Warner. During the conversation, Cecil said that he wrestled for Charles Locke out of Omaha, Nebraska in the past. Tony had naturally followed up on this reference, which is why a hundred years later people are still lying on their resumes, but the police did follow up. When Charles was shown a picture of Roland, he said that he'd never seen the man before, and Roland definitely hadn't wrestled for him. It was another dead end, and the trail was going colder with every passing day. Not only that, but there were two more murders in Kansas City shortly following the death of Roland, murders which had much more concrete evidence, and these drew police attention away from the case. The body continued to linger at the funeral home for viewings until it was finally announced in the March 3rd edition of the Journal Post that Roland would be buried the next day in the Potter's Field. For anyone unfamiliar, a Potter's Field is essentially a mass pauper's grave, a field where the bodies of John Doe's and people who can't afford proper burials all get unceremoniously dumped together without grave markers. I have I have conflicting feelings about this because like, I believe like once you're dead, it's just like you're just bones and meat, and that's it. Like your consciousness, the only valuable thing is gone. But it's also like I'd rather not just be thrown in a mass grave. Thank you very much. <laughs> like that's just a bit. It's a bit grim, isn't it? Just I don't know. I don't know what I want. I guess I guess. Well, I'd like to be frozen, <laughs> so that I can wake up in a glorious utopian future where they heal all my diseases. But. But I don't know, like realistically, I guess cremation. I don't really want to be buried and be like eaten by worms. That's a bit grim. Or like maybe I'd like to be turned into a tree. Like not not in a crazy way. You know, like people, they put them, they, they bury you with like a seed or something and then the tree uses you. This sounds really grim now I'm thinking about it, but I always thought it was pretty cool how the tree will like grow around you or whatever, or your bones. No, fuck that. That's kind of creepy now. <laughs> turned into a tree. It appeared that the story of the mysterious man from room 1046 was going to have a fitting but unsatisfying end. But then, inside Melody McGilly funeral home, something unbelievable happened. Roland opened his eyes. What the fuck? No, I'm just fucking with you. He's been embalmed and shit. His body's on display. He's like, Aah! oh my god. Where am I? That would be an insane twist, but what happened is still pretty bizarre. Inside... <laughs> Kevin, I fucking love that you put that in there. Inside the funeral home, the phone rang, and on the other end was an unidentified stranger with a list of demands. Two new names. When the funeral director picked up the phone, the voice on the other end demanded that Roland's funeral be postponed. The caller didn't want the body buried in a pauper's grave, so he was going to send a package to the funeral home with enough money to cover the costs of a proper burial. Despite the fact that it was now well known that Roland was not his real name and he was currently a John Doe, the caller still wanted a gravestone to bear that fake name. He also requested the body be buried at Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City, Kansas, so that he would be near his sister's grave. For the benefit of Simon and any international viewers who are unaware of some of the oddities of American geography, a quick explanation. Uh, the two Kansas cities. Oh, okay, there are two Kansas cities. I didn't even know that. They're separated by the Missouri River, but otherwise would share a border. So wait, there's two Kansas cities right next to each other? So even though their caller was requesting that Roland be buried in a different state, it wasn't actually that far away. Okay, it's like, um, oh, what are those two cities? Bra uh, Brat is it Bratislava and Vienna? Are they the two cities that are that like super close to each other? It's like a hundred miles separating them or something. Two capital cities. The detail about a potential sister wasn't the only bit of information the caller had regarding Roland's death. He straight up told the funeral director the motive. According to the man, Roland had been engaged to a woman, but he was having an affair with another. He and the two women had arranged a meeting at the hotel president to confront Roland about his infidelity and to exact revenge. Well, who the fuck is the random bloke who's coming along then? Ron or whatever his name was. Don? 
Don. That's right, the guy calling from the funeral home to offer to pay for Roland's ever-proper burial was effectively also confessing to being his murderer. The funeral director informed the caller that, of course, he was going to have to relay this information to the police, but the caller wasn't concerned. When the funeral director asked exactly what the caller's relationship with Roland was, other than his murderer, of course, the man replied, Roland hadn't played the game fair. The cheaters usually gets what's coming to them. He then hung up the phone. Naturally, the funeral director informed the police that this had happened, but the caller didn't identify himself, and there was no way to trace the call. The director postponed the funeral as instructed, and on March the 23rd, he received a special delivery from an anonymous sender. Inside the package, wrapped in the newspaper, was $25 in cash, enough to cover the funeral expenses. Which is insane. Funerals today cost several thousand dollars, at least in America, and the $25 is only $550 after inflation. I don't even think I could get my cat cremated for that amount of money. It would also be a really mean thing to do, since my cat's still alive, Kevin, no! In addition to the, it's definitely going to cost you more than that, you go to the vet, it's like, can you cremate my cat? And it's like, wait, it's still alive, it's going to cost you a bit more, mate. <laughs> In addition to this delivery, two letters were delivered to the nearby Rock Flower Company. Each envelope contained $5 cash, along with the instructions to make an arrangement of 13 American Beauty roses to be placed on Roland's grave. Oh my god, I just understood why American Beauty is called American Beauty. Ah, I can't believe I didn't know that. Because of the rose petals. I had never really given the movie a title much thought. And that's why. Oh! In a handwritten card was included to be left with the flowers as well, and it read, Love Forever, Louise. From that moment on, media outlets began referring to Roland's case as the Love Forever Killing, because every murder needs a catchy nickname. The funeral went smoothly, though the only attendees were the funeral home staff and police detectives. Other detectives that didn't attend the funeral went undercover as gravediggers to stake out the grave for a few days, but nobody came to visit. Over at the Journal Post, a phone call came in following the funeral. A woman was calling to inform them that their previous story about Roland being buried in a pauper's grave was incorrect and that he had been given a proper burial. It seems like she wanted them to print a retraction, and she informed the paper that both Funeral Home and Flower Shop could verify her claim. While the funeral hadn't been deliberately kept secret, it wasn't publicized either. Outside of the police, Funeral Home and Florist, the only people who would have known about this were the ones who paid for the funeral. The newspaper asked the woman who she was, and she replied, Never mind that, I know what I'm talking about. When pressed for details, she said, He got in a jam and hung up the phone. Rowlands may have got a proper burial, but there were so many bizarre details and so much that was still unknown. The real identity of this victim remained a mystery, as did the identity of the mysterious Don that he had spoken with. However, there was one potential lead. In another hotel where Roland had stayed, he had a companion who signed in as Donald Kelso. It was assumed that this was an alias, but searching for an alias was better than searching for nothing. Of course, nothing was still what they found. Wait, so... <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's definitely better to search for the alias, except no. Because if I went to a hotel and signed in as John Brown, then... People are going to search for John Brown. It's going to get them absolutely nowhere because I just pulled the name John Brown out of my ass. In May of that year, the case was featured in magazines, American Weekly, and official detective stories billed as America's strangest and perfect murder crime. As soon as this happened, the letters started pouring in. Unfortunately, they were all useless. The story itself is fairly ridiculous and sounds more like fiction than reality, and the letters reflected that same level of detachment from the plausible. Half of the responses to the articles read like somebody's spec script for a TV pilot, and the other half were filled with insane theories based on little to no evidence. Because always remember, there's loads of crazy people out there <laughs> often sending me emails it'd be like what's up bro <laughs> what the fuck you saying <laughs> for example one man stated with absolute certainty that the killer was a civil engineer based on the shape of the letter r in something believed to have been signed by the killer just speaking of insane emails literally just before recording this 
Let me see if I can find it. I don't really ever... I always just archive my emails, at least for a few years. So, if we look in here... Oh yeah, this is fucking great. This was a crazy one I received, like, literally an hour ago. <laughs> Where the fuck do you think you can get off insulting incels while looking like a disgusting, weak, liberal, balded, beard, pedophile, looking pathetic excuse for a man with a body of a child? I would rupture your fucking skull and smash your teeth down your throat. Fuck you. You'll suffer for what you said. <laughs> Incels be angry. Also, like, what were you talking about? Like, it, it, I don't understand. You fucking psycho, and I'd beat the shit out of you, you virgin. Um, <laughs> carrying on, <laughs> but that's the sort of insanity that hits my inbox. Like, that was literally just before I started recording, just like one that I thought of. Most email I get is very nice. I don't reply to it because I'm really busy. But most email I get is really nice. And then you just get insane incels. Or just insane people. <laughs> and to have you know, I have an extremely manly body. Police were getting nowhere, and the case of Roland Owen, whoever he really was, was officially cold. And that's where it remained for the next 16 months, until Ruby Ogletree's friend handed her an old issue of American Weekly and said, Isn't this picture your son? Ruby had suspected for nearly two years that her son was dead, but she had no idea what really happened. Now, as she looked at the article and the photograph of her son's distinctive scar caused by a childhood grease fire, she finally had confirmation. The boy in the photo wasn't named Roland or Eugene or Cecil. It was Artemis Ogletree, which is a badass name, like first name and second name. Artemis Ogletree. You sound like a supervillain, Artemis. And Artemis wasn't between 20 and 35 when he was murdered. He was only 17. Oh my lord, he's got some hard living. <laughs> but the story doesn't end there. That would be far too simple. In 1934, Artemis had left his home in Birmingham, Alabama to hitchhike his way to California. He wrote letters to his mother frequently, and she would wire him money through Western Union or whatever other cash service. However, despite Artemis dying within the first week of 1935, she continued to receive letters through May of that year. Like I said, though, she had already grown suspicious. I'm going to spare Simon for having to read actual quotes from Artemis's letters, but suffice to say, they were extremely banal and barely intelligible. Following his death, however, Ruby noticed a distinct change in the letters. <laughs> yeah, he's dead, they're being written by somebody else. They were still barely intelligible, likely done to emulate Artemis's writing style, but they were much less banal. Not only were the stories contained within the letters outrageous to the point of bordering on the unbelievable, but they displayed a much larger vocabulary than Artemis appeared to possess. In the letters that were sent following his death, the person writing on behalf of Artemis claimed that he was traveling to New York, and then wrote the last letter before allegedly boarding a boat to sail to France. Ah, 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 he's not in France, he's dead! The letters have been postmarked from Chicago and then New York. There was something peculiar about the last couple of letters, though. Artemis had always handwritten his letters, and the first that followed his death were also handwritten, but following that, they were typed. Is that so unusual? It'd be like, well, he got a typewriter then, didn't he, at some point? <laughs> Obviously. As far as Ruby knew, Artemis had no idea how to use a typewriter. Well, I'll tell you what, Artemis, what you do is you look at the letters, and then you press the button for which letter you want. Boom! <laughs> Admittedly, that's not really a smoking gun. A typewriter isn't exactly a complicated piece of machinery, and even if he typed slowly, I'm sure he could have struggled his way through it one key at a time. Exactly, Kevin and I, same page. The only difference between typing on your computer's keyboard and typing on a typewriter is that there's no text wrap, so you'd have to hit the return key, and automatic carriage returns had long since been invented, so that's most of the work done for you already. What is an automatic carriage return? That is some historical shit right there, Kevin. Of course, Artemis
Potamus would still have needed to use his own typewriter in order to do this, and I'm sure Ruby realized how unlikely he was to buy one. In August, eight months after Artemis was murdered, Ruby received a phone call from Memphis, Tennessee. The caller said that he was a man named Godfrey Jet Jordan and that Artemis had saved his life. He said the two had met in Cairo, Egypt, where Artemis had rescued him from a band of thugs. <laughs> Artemis's life after death is more interesting than his life. Unfortunately, Artemis lost one or both of his thumbs during the fight, so he was unable to write to her. And because he was now in Africa, he couldn't call her on the telephone. But it was okay. Despite losing a thumb or two, Artemis was totally fine. He'd married a wealthy woman in Cairo and was living his best thumbless life. <laughs> Ruby and Godfrey talked on the phone for about 45 minutes, and she didn't believe this story for a second. To start, this is America. Most Americans don't even have a valid passport, though we're getting really close to 50% now. But, needlessly to say, a 17-year-old who is trying to hitchhike from Alabama to California is unlikely to both have a valid passport and suddenly decide he's going to travel to Europe and Africa instead. But despite how fantastical and insane Godfrey's story was, it was clear to Ruby that the person she was talking to did know her son on a personal basis. To her credit, Ruby was neither going to take the letters and phone call at face value, nor was she going to sit idly by and hope for the best. She immediately began speaking to the police, telling them about the correspondence she had received. To investigate whether or not her son had actually obtained a passport or sailed to Cairo without one, she began writing letters to the State Department, the Customs Authority, the FBI, and the American Consulate in Cairo. By January of 1936, a year after her son's murder, she was writing di letters directly to President Roosevelt and FBI Director Hoover. I don't believe FDR answered the letters, but she seems to have received at least one reply from Hoover personally. Oh my god, this... They must be, people might must write so many letters. <laughs> I guess it's like emails. Like, I write a lot of emails. I guess that's the same thing. Like I write a lot of emails and sign. I guess I do the modern equivalent of signing them, signing them in an S. <laughs> as far as anybody can tell, Artemis had not travelled to Cairo with or without a passport, but nobody knew where he was until, of course, Ruby's friend showed her the magazine featuring the picture of a murdered son. That was only half the mystery solved, though the victim, formerly known as Roland now known as more badass Artemis, must have had his real had may have had his real name bag, but the identity of his killer still eluded authorities. And of course, that led to countless theories. The theories. Since this case is nearly a hundred years old and has a lot of strange details, there are innumerable theories as to what really happens. Most of what I'm going to call the fan theories are either variations of two main theories or are so entirely outlandish that they're not worth mentioning. The first fan theory is that Artemis was involved in a secret homosexual relationship with Don, whoever the hell Don was. It stands to reason that whoever killed Artemis was somebody close to him because every time the hotel staff visited his room, the door was locked from the outside. There obviously had to be somebody that he trusted enough to give the key to for this to be the case, and many believed that the person was his lover turned murderer. Why would they lock that? Why would they lock him in the room though? Even if it's someone they tr he trusts, that's really weird. Just leave it unlocked. Just take the key so you can get back in later. Or I guess you couldn't. I guess it wasn't a latch system. But whatever, it, it's still weird. There's not really any motive given for why that relationship would have turned to murder though. A lot of people like to mix in ideas that Artemis and his secret lover were engaged in a lot of kinky stuff, and that Artemis was the obedient little sub waiting motionless on the bed in a locked room for Don to return and do as he pleased. This is definitely a theory that exists, but hopefully you don't need an expert to tell you that fractured skulls are not a normal part of BDSM, neither is blood on the ceiling. <laughs> Honestly, I think this theory hyperfixates on a few details of the story and ignores the myriad of other bizarre yet important details to produce the most salacious narrative possible. The other popular fan theory involves the mafia <laughs> of course it does uh, well, what would a good 1930s story without the what would it be it wouldn't be good without the mafia would it 
Because what would a good unsolved murder be without mafia involvement? Yes, there's more to this theory than just the association between the name Don and the title Don, but that's definitely part of it. Really? Yeah, but that'd be like, yeah, okay, mister. It's like, what? Some people believe that Artemis fell in love with the daughter of a mafia Don, or at least the daughter or sister of somebody tied up with the mafia. Aside from people believing that Don was a title and not the name of his friend, there are a couple of other pieces of evidence that someone supported this, somewhat support this theory. First, the murder was clearly personal. It was horrifically brutal in nature, to the point of going beyond anger or revenge and more towards sending a message. But despite the seemingly impassioned killing, it was at least somewhat professional. There was virtually no evidence left in the room save for the couple of pins, the cigarette, and the sulfuric acid. Those could easily have been left as red herrings because they're a bizarre assortment of items. Being able to murder somebody so brutally and escape the hotel without being seen, especially while soaked in that person's blood, would almost certainly require the skills of a professional. Of course, they may not have been soaked in blood when they left. There weren't any towels in Artemis's room, and but maybe they washed up in a different room. Some people suggest that the sex worker and her client were actually the mysterious Don and accomplice. Perhaps what the man who called the funeral home said was true, and that the couple arranged to meet with Artemis in his room that night. If the way he had been cheating on his fiancée was by hiring this sex worker, the situation becomes even more plausible. Picture this. The woman took the elevator to the 10th floor and then called the elevator back to explain her situation to Charlie, the operator. It seems weird that she delivered such a detailed exposition without actually taking the elevator back downstairs. So she may have been using this opportunity to establish that the hotel staff knew her and her occupation. They already did before, but for the sake of the plan, she had to be sure. After waiting a little longer, she left and met up with Don returning to the hotel and then taking the room elevator to her room on the ninth floor where Artemis's fiancé was waiting. Um, yeah, maybe. It's like, sure, it fits, but there's not really any evidence to support it, is there? From there, the three took the stairwell to the next floor, where it opened up right by Artemis's room, and they entered to confront him like the person who called the funeral homes claimed. This was the loud conversation with lots of swears that Jean heard next door, though I still find it hard to believe that she couldn't tell if the sound was coming from next door or just somewhere on the same floor as her. After the argument, the women left the room while Don took care of the murdering. Once the deed was done, he took the stairwell back to the ninth floor so he could clean up and he and the sex worker could leave the hotel separately. All of Artemis's belongings, as well as the murder weapon, were placed inside his fiancée's bag and she carried them out of the hotel the next day when she checked out as normal. While I'm not completely sold on this story, it isn't that outlandish. It doesn't require that much planning or coordination, and it didn't leave anything to luck. The Mafia was a powerful organization, so for all we know, they could have been responsible for the raucous party on the 10th floor to ensure that Artemis's screams of pain would go unnoticed. His refusal to give up his killer when the doctor asked also makes people think it was the Mafia, because God forbid he ratted them out and actually survived his wounds. Yeah, or he rats them out and then they just decide to kill people he knows and his family. But the other piece of evidence in support of this was the funeral. While it wasn't standard practice for everybody that disappeared mysteriously, the Mafia would sometimes pay for the funerals of their victims under the right circumstances. If Artemis's fiance, who we'll call Louise, really did love him, she may have insisted that he have a proper burial, even though he had to be punished for his indiscretions. It's the yeah, This does sound like it does fit well, but it's all very, very circumstantial. I like it, though. It's the perfect mix of tantalizing and just plausible enough that this theory has endured and remained the most popular theory since the 1930s. However, Kansas City Police had another theory, and their theory was that the murderer was a man named Joseph Martin, alias Joseph Marshall, alias Joseph Ogden, alias W.V. Smith, alias Donald Kelso. Holy shit. In 1937, Joseph murdered his roommate in New York, stuffed the body in a trunk, and took it to the Railway Express Agency to ship it to Memphis. The body was discovered before it shipped, and Joseph was arrested. 
There is no dispute that he murdered Oliver Seinkel in New York, but the Kansas City detectives were sure that he had killed Artemis as well. Not only did he use the alias Donald Kelso, the name of Artemis's travel companion, at one of the hotels, but detectives matched his handwriting to one of the handwritten letters Ruby received after Artemis was murdered. That's it. This, this is this, this is it. The police have it, don't they? The police were 100% certain this was their killer, and the story was published in The New Yorker in January 1938. Okay, I get the feeling it's not, though, is it? Like, Kevin... But for some reason, they never charged Joseph with the murder. Instead, the case was officially left open. I don't know why that happens, but in the 1950s, the files were sent to the FBI. There, FBI analysts determined that the handwriting samples did not match. Of course, I mentioned this in another episode, possibly over on Casual Criminalist, but handwriting analysis is viewed as junk science by many and may soon go the way of lie detector tests anyway. With the FBI dismantling the police's theory, all that remained was Ruby's theory. You see, she didn't let her broke 17-year-old son try to hitchhike over 2,000 miles to California by himself. That would have been crazy. Instead, he took his similarly-aged friend, Joe Simpson. Joe hasn't been mentioned anywhere else in this story, which is odd, since they were supposed to be traveling together. That could be because they had a fight and had gone their separate ways before all of this happened, or it could be because he was using the fake name Don. But Ruby still believed Joe was the one behind it. She even managed to track down and confront Joe in Memphis in December 1939. It took several attempts to meet, as Joe had kept standing Ruby up. Suspiciously, he also claimed to have a letter for her that Artemis had poorly typed. It was suspicious because no such letter was ever produced, and because he claimed that the letter was typed, which she still believed Artemis couldn't do. According to Ruby's account of their conversation, Joe seemed to joke around a bit about the fact that the police and the feds would never be able to catch whoever committed the murder, and there were no clues left behind for the G-men to work on. Yeah, nobody will be able to ever figure out my, I mean, the murder. <laughs> Not my murder. At some point during the conversation, Ruby looked Joe dead in the eyes and said, I would know the voice that talked to me from Memphis. According to her, he then turned bright red, looked down, and started acting really nervous. All of this was detailed in a letter she wrote to the Kansas City detectives, including her assertion that she was reasonably convinced Joe is the person who called her eight months after the murder with the story about Cairo. Holy shit. <laughs> if that's true, I mean, all of these sort of vaguely fit, and it's a bit of like, not eyewitness testimony, but like unreliable, circumstantial, so they all kind of fit a little bit nicely. But I, so, I mean, how are you supposed to know which one it is? You don't. The police don't know. No one knows. As far as I can tell, the police never followed up on Ruby's theory, or if they did, they determined it was a dead end and never made any statements about it. Whoever killed Artemis had committed the perfect murder, and the infamous tale lived on for decades without a conclusion. But there are certain patterns of behavior that killers, particularly serial killers, tend to follow. One final twist. Little Jack Horner sat in the corner of the Kansas City Public Library. Or maybe he preferred to go by John. It's not important. The year was either 2003 or 2004, and Jack was a local historian who worked at the library. He received an out-of-state phone call from somebody inquiring about the murder of Artemis Ogletree, which probably wasn't that uncommon. However, this caller wasn't actually interested in asking questions about the case. They wanted to share information. The caller had a friend who had been itemizing the belongings of an elderly person that had just passed away. Itemizing feels like a weird word choice because, based on what followed, the caller was more likely just a relative of the deceased rather than somebody organizing the belongings for an estate sale or finding some or something like that, but it's the word that they went with. Among the belongings was a box filled with newspaper clippings about the murder room of 1046. It definitely sounds like serial killer behavior, but it sounds like obsessed retired detective behavior as well. However, the caller then revealed that the box also contained an item that was mentioned in multiple articles as being related to the case but was never found. Uh-oh, this is happening. What was the item, you ask? Well, that's a fantastic question. But according to Jack, the caller never said. 
They didn't say who they were, whose belongings they were, or what the newly discovered piece of evidence was. They basically just called to say, What's up, Jack? Just wanted you to be aware that I know who killed Artemis Ogilby. Okay, bye! <laughs> Some people have speculated that the missing item may have been the shard of glass that was used as a murder weapon. That seems pretty unlikely. Holding onto the murder weapon as a trophy is a stupid idea, and the killer seemed smarter than that. Yeah, that glass you should smash into a million pieces and then throw in a river or better off the sea throw it in the sea besides it's like the easiest murder weapon to dispose of just toss it in the dumpster behind the restaurant where a bloody piece of broken glass wouldn't be that suspicious no 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 like i understand that's a reasonable way and you'd think that's quite a safe way of getting rid of a murder weapon but they, 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 they no 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 smash it into a million pieces until it is like glass sand with a hammer and then heat it put it in a fire put it in a fire and then take those fiery ashes and then throw them put them in a box and then go and empty that box in the sea and then burn the box and then take those ashes and put them in a river because you should always dispose of your murder weapons very very thoroughly come on don't be an amateur there's also the chance that the caller was talking out of their ass and just thought that it would be fun to troll the local historian it's certainly possible but i'm not fully convinced if anybody was lying i wouldn't think it would be jack himself I'm not saying that he is lying, but the revelation is a little bit suspicious. He said that the call came from out of state, but not what state. Caller ID wasn't amazing back then, so maybe all he had to go on was an unknown area code. But it would be nice to know whether out of state meant Kansas City, but just on the other side of the river, or if it meant something like upstate New York. Jack also only referred to the person he was spe speaking to as either the caller or this person, concealing whether or not it was a man or woman's voice that he heard. But most suspiciously, this information wasn't revealed until he wrote a blog post on the Kansas City Public Library's website about the case in 2012, long after any records of the phone call would have been deleted. Or at least this information was not revealed publicly. Maybe he told the police that they weren't able to find out anything useful after following up, or maybe he actually just wanted to sit on this groundbreaking revolution that revelation that had the potential to blow the case wide open just for the hell of it. Again, I'm not calling Jack a liar, and I can't say for certain whether he contacted the police quietly or chose to sit on this bombshell for a decade without telling anyone it's just another weird twist in a story that didn't make a lot of sense to begin with. Of course, if everything that Jack wrote in his blog post about this case is accurate, it means that this wasn't the perfect murder after all, and the truth of the killer's identity is still out there somewhere. There are currently two men, and or women, who live in one of the 49 states that aren't Missouri who know the identity of Artemis Ogilby's killer. If that isn't a lead, I don't know what is. Oh yeah, the phone call was almost 10 years ago, so maybe they do live in Missouri now. Good luck, detectives. Yeah, it was this case is also 100 years old. Everyone's dead, for sure. Anyway, that's where we end today's episode. Thank you so much for being here. If you enjoy the show, please do leave a rating on Spotify. If you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe. And I'll see you next time.